So if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to the book of Genesis, chapter 36. Last time we were in Genesis, a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Matt preached an excellent sermon on chapter 35. And at the end of chapter 35, Isaac died. Isaac, uh, Father Isaac um, died, and his sons, uh, Jacob and Esau, buried him. And so then the, the story, the focus of the book of Genesis shifts now from a focus on Isaac to a focus on his sons, or really from his line to their line and their family. And before Moses goes on to write about the line of promise, the line of the covenant, through the next several chapters, as he covers uh, the, the family of Jacob and predominantly his son Joseph and all of what transpires in the life of Joseph, and I'm so looking forward to beginning that next week as we dive into chapter 37. That story will, will continue through the end of this book, through the end of Genesis chapter 50. But before Moses goes there and tells about the line of promise through Jacob, he spends this one chapter today, this morning, in chapter 36, talking about the other son that he had, Actually, the firstborn son, Esau. Now, it's quite possible, perhaps even probable, that you've never heard a sermon on Genesis chapter 36. And I would venture to say that if you have heard a sermon preached on Genesis chapter 36, that 2 Timothy 3.16 has also been quoted to you in that sermon, that all Scripture is inspired and profitable all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be fully equipped for every good work. This is part of that inspired word, and it is a genealogy. The entire chapter is a genealogy. Some 81 plus names, depending on all of those names that repeat, whether they're talking about the same person a second time and a third time, or whether they're talking about a different person who goes by the same name, both of which happened in this genealogy to my understanding. And so there's a lot here. And, you know, we're going to read this. We're going to read this with the vigor and enthusiasm of trained genealogists. So I know you're waiting with bated breath, right? But let's admit, you know, when we, we come across a passage of Scripture like this, the temptation is to kind of quickly move through it. In our own Bible reading, we're like, okay, I need to get on to like the life of Joseph. Even me preaching, I'm like, I want to get there. Can we, can we skip? No, we're committed to expositional preaching. We're going to stay with 36. And why is that? Well, we look at a passage of Scripture like this and we're tempted to think it's dry, it's insignificant. But I would submit to you that there is rich and deeply significant meaning to this passage this morning that we need to unpack together. And so let us read Genesis chapter 36. I'm going to work through the entire thing um, all the way through ch- uh, verse 43. So please Bear with me as we read God's inspired word. These are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Adah, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, Oholibama, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, and Bezmath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebioth. 
and Adah bore Esau, Eliphaz, Basemath bore Ruel, and Oholibamah bore Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. And he went to a land far away, a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites, in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons, Eliphaz, the son of Adah, the wife of Esau, Ruel, the son of Basemath, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz were Timon, Omar, Zepho, Garam, and Kenaz. Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. She bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Adah, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Ruel, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Oholibamah, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion, Esau's wife. She bore Esau, Jeush, Jadam, and Korah. These are the chiefs of the sons of Elah, Esau. The sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau. The chiefs, Timon, Omar, Zepho, Kenaz, Korah, Gitam, and Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Adah. These are the sons of Ruel, Esau's sons. The chiefs Nehath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the chiefs of Ruel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Oholibamah, Esau's wife. The chiefs Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs born of Oholibamah, the daughter of Atah, Esau's wife. Anah, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau, that is, Edom. And these are their chiefs. Halfway there. These are the sons of Seir, the Horite, the inhabitants of the land, Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anah, Dishon, Ezer, Dishon. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Hori and Hemam, and Lotan's sister was, was Timnah, these are the sons of Shobal, Alvan, Mahanhath, Ebal, Shepho, and Onam. These are the sons of Zibion, Ayah, and Anah. He is the Anah who found the hot springs in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of Zibion, his father. See, the, these are the children of Anah, Dishon, and Oholibama, the daughter of Anah. These are the sons of Dishon, Hemdan, Eshban, Ithran, and Cheron. These are the sons of Ezer, Bilhan, Zavan, and Akan. These are the sons of Dishan, Uz, and Aran. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the chiefs Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anad, Dishan, Ezer, Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, chief by chief, in the land of Seir. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any... Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, the name of his city being Denbaha. Bela died, and Joab, the, the son of Zerah of Buzrah, reigned in his place. Joab, Jobab died, and Husham, in the land of the Temanites, reigned in his place. Husham died, and Hadad, the son of Bedad, 
who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, reigned in his place, the name of his city being Avith. Hadad died, and Samla of Masrachah reigned in his place. Samla died, and Shaul of Rehoboth of the Euphrates reigned in his place. Shaul died, and Baal Hanan, the son of Akbor, reigned in his place. Baal Hanan, the son of Akbor, died, and Hadar reigned in his place, the name of his city being Pau. His wife's name was Mehedabal, the daughter of Matred, daughter of Mezahab. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau according to their clans and their dwelling places. By their names, the chiefs Timnah, Alva, Jetheth, Oholibama, Elah, Pinan, Kenaz, Timon, Mibzar, Magdil, and Iram. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, father of Edom, according to their dwelling places and the land of their possession. Let's pray. Father, we, we ask um, in Jesus' name that you would be with us this morning. Uh, we thank you for your word. And we ask, Father, that you would do what only you can do, and that is to give us not just understanding, but Lord, that you would help us to draw out meaning and application from this text, Father, so that we would be moved one step closer to Christ-likeness, that those who know you by faith, Father, would, uh, be, um, would grow in our likeness to your Son, Jesus Christ, after having been exposed to your holy word this morning. We pray that you would move among us, Father, and teach us and transform us, and change us. And Father, we pray for those among us who may not know you by faith. Um, We ask, Father, that the gospel would become readily apparent even through this passage. And we pray this in faith, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, those of you who are praying for me, knowing what Genesis 36 was, thank you very, very much. Uh, It's a mouthful, right? Just a bunch of names. It's, it's like 100% genealogy that we have in Genesis chapter 36. With, with just a few anecdotal notes attached to some of the names, other than that, it's 100% names. Some of the names you might recognize. Some of them have significance in other parts of Scripture. Amalek, by the way, is the father of the Amalekites who will become a fierce enemy of the nation of Israel. And as as the the children of Israel escape from slavery in Egypt and are making their way to Canaan, they are attacked viciously by the Amalekites. Well, they get their start here from one of the sons of Esau. The genealogy is also very difficult to follow here, just as we're making some preliminary observations it's difficult to follow, um, and you may have, you may have uh, discerned some of that difficulty as we were reading through it. Um, I certainly felt some of the difficulty as I was reading it. seems like I was repeating names over and over again. That's because uh, there are actually several different lists that uh, Moses gives us here of the line of Esau, and he's doing different things, and so he kind of goes back and forth in time, even as he's laying out this genealogy. Roughly, we could kind of categorize this chapter uh, in this way, into these broad categories. In verses 1 through 8, he's kind of given us a, a 
broad, top-level view of, of Esau's wives and the sons that he had through those wives. And that happened in Canaan. And then he talks about how uh, then Esau migrated down to Edom in the south. That was 1 through 8. And then in verses 9 through 19, he covers the sons again and the wives again, but then he goes another level and he talks about his grandsons. He talks about the sons of his sons. And then he begins to talk about the chiefs of the tribes that came from his family, some of whom are his grandsons, some of whom are not his grandsons. And so uh, it gets more convoluted there. In verses 20 through 30, Moses kind of hits the pause on talking about the lineage of Esau and Esau's family. And in those 11 verses, he's talking about the inhabitants of the land where Esau settled. So uh, there are three different words that are used here. Esau is the person, Edom is the country in the south, and Seir is the land of the country of Edom where Esau settled. And so Esau settles there, and there are people there. There are already tribes that are there, and so he lists who those tribes are in verses 20 through 30. And of those peoples that are listed in those 11 verses, Esau either um, conquers them or he marries into them and thereby ends up absorbing those tribes into his larger tribe as this nation is growing. And then lastly, in verses 31 through 43, he returns to the genealogy of Esau's line again and talks about not just the sons and the grandsons and the chiefs, but also now the kings and the the succession of kings over about 150 years in the nation and land of Edom. Now, as you're working through this, as I was working through this and studying this, there's, there's lots of textual difficulties here with some of the repetitions and how the names don't seem to match up at different times as you map it all out. And we don't have time to get into all the details of those textual difficulties, but to suffice it to say that the way that the ancient Hebrews did genealogy and really any culture of the ancient Near East, the way they did genealogy is not the way we do genealogy today. This genealogy, the way it's written, the way it's recorded by Moses here, would would not be accepted as documentation on Ancestry.com. It doesn't fit how we do genealogy today. But it was perfectly acceptable for how genealogy was taken in that day. Now, now, please hear what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. I'm not saying, when I say that, I'm not inferring at all that there's any mistakes in the text. But what I'm saying is that Moses doesn't necessarily cover the details of each life that's recorded here. Just as an example, we know from walking through Genesis that people's names changed in that culture, right? Abram became Abraham. Sarai became Sarah. Jacob became Israel. And so we know that those names changed at different times in their life. That was a part of that culture. And so it's quite possible that some of these names changed throughout the years from generation to generation, and yet Moses didn't necessarily record that their name had changed. And so that's why sometimes it doesn't look like it matches up. And again, we don't, we're not going to go line by line through all 81 plus names as, as to how to deal with all these textual difficulties, but rest assured that there is a rational and reasonable explanation for each of them. Another observation to note is that Genesis 36 is unlike most other genealogies because not only are we told about his sons, 
but we're told about the tribes that come from them. We're given the names of the chiefs of each of the tribes. And so uh, this becomes a description not just of his sons and their families, but of the tribes that their families begin to constitute. And then at the end of the chapter, as we mentioned, we're told about the kings of that land. And so this, this is a genealogy, not just of a man, not just of his family, but of a nation. And so the prophecy that God gave to Rebekah, the twins' mothers, back when she was still pregnant with Jacob and Esau, the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two nations. And two peoples come from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. This prophecy that God gave to Rebekah is now, as a result of chapter 36, is now, at least in part, the first part of that prophecy has now become true. Esau has become a people. Esau, this firstborn of the twins, has become a nation. Additionally, five times in this passage, we saw repeated over and over that Esau is Edom. Esau is Edom. He says that over and over again. Moses wants to make that very clear that Esau is the beginning of the nation of Edom. And this will become very important in the study of scriptures as we walk continually through the Old Testament because the Edomites play a critical role in the national history of the Israelites. The Edomites are mentioned over 130 times in the scriptures in the Old Testament, which is a record of Israel's history. Edomites are mentioned over 130 times, and they become a thorn in the side of Israel's side. Later in their history, when Israel is attacked and destroyed, the Edomites rejoice over this. They rejoice over the destruction of Israel. And the entire chapter of Ezekiel chapter 35 is devoted to God's prophecy of judgment on the Edomites because they rejoice at the destruction of Israel. And yet, it's interesting to note that though the Lord knows this about them, yet he still providentially protects the Edomites from Israel's might. Moses, who writes Genesis, will later write the book of Deuteronomy. And in chapter 2 of Deuteronomy, God says through Moses... Israelites, when you are leaving from the Red Sea, when when I deliver you out of slavery and 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 you're making your way to Canaan, you're going to pass through the land of your brother Esau. You're going to pass through the land of the Edomites and you are to let them be. You, you, You are not to destroy them. You are not to conquer them. Conquer everyone else because this is the land that I'm giving to you. But do not conquer them. Don't take any of the land that I have given to them. It's interesting. God is saving them. God is commanding the nation of Israel to leave the Edomites alone as they pass on their way to Canaan. And so Genesis chapter 36 would be very important for the Israelites in that day, right? It would be very important, this just genealogy of who they were, so that they could know who the Edomites were, so that they could obey God and let the Edomites be free. 
and not conquer them. Now, is that all of why this list of names is here? Is, is, is that all that this list of names is good for? To, to show the ancient Israelites who the Edomites were so that they would leave them alone on their way to Canaan? Is that it? Is this passage of Scripture of no further profit to us? And so I want to move from just an observation about the text to now an explanation of the text. And usually when we move from observation to explanation, this involves the process of interpreting text, interpretation. But the interpretation of this text is pretty straightforward. We see it right there in verse 1. These are the generations of Esau. These are the names of his wives, his sons, his grandsons, the families that come from them, the tribes that come from them, and the chiefs and the kings that he fathers and the nation that comes from him. That's what this chapter is. The interpretation is pretty straightforward. So really, with a passage of Scripture like this, we're not really seeking to answer the question, what does this mean? Instead, we're seeking to answer the question, why is this here? That's really the question we want to know, right? Why, why does the Bible contain a chapter consisting of a genealogy of pagans? Because it's not just about a genealogy, right? There's lots of genealogies in the Word of God. But most of those genealogies help us to trace the line of promise to Christ. The, the, the promise that God would send one um, from the promise that God made to the serpent in the garden. That he was going to send one that came from the seed of the woman who would defeat and crush the head of the serpent and defeat sin and death forever. And so most genealogies that we find in Scripture help us to trace the line of redemption from Adam to Christ or from somewhere in between to the cross. But not this one. Not this one. This is not a genealogy of the line of promise of the elect, of the covenant this, this is a genealogy of idol worshipers and pagans and those who are far from God. So why in the world would God devote an entire chapter of genealogy of pagans and the non-elect? If we can answer that question, then we'll be well on our way to bringing application to our lives today. So I've got four answers to that question and these four answers to the question why is this here can be articulated in the form of four lessons that we can glean from this text and the first lesson is that God keeps his promises God keeps his promises we noted part of this earlier when we mentioned that God said to Rebecca their mother when she was still still pregnant with the twins two nations are in your womb And the older will serve the younger. That meant two things regarding Esau. First of all, it meant that Esau would become a nation. Not just Jacob, who would become Israel. But Esau also would become a nation. The nation of Edom. Esau would become a nation. Now, that doesn't happen for every baby, you know. How many of you here can say, I am a nation? 
right? I have, I have become a nation, right? Uh, the, the, the Dolans and the Siatis are well on their way. They're, they maybe got a, maybe a little tribe starting there, but they're not a nation, right? And God says to both of these unborn babies in the womb, you will become a nation. That's exactly what is recorded here. A man who became a country, who became a nation. God keeps his promises. We're also told by the writer of Hebrews when, when, that when Isaac, his father, gave his blessing to Esau. You recall that, right? Uh, Jacob stole the blessing of the firstborn from Esau, but Esau still got a blessing. It, was, it wasn't the, the, the same blessing that Jacob got, but it was a blessing nonetheless. And the writer of Hebrews tells us about that. Hebrews 11, verse 20 says, By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. He doesn't say he invoked future blessing on Jacob and cursing on Esau, but future blessing on them both. They were different. Jacob got the blessing of the firstborn by God's sovereign will, but Esau still got a blessing. He received a blessing. And, and, and the writer of Hebrews says this was by faith that Isaac gave this blessing. By faith. By faith in what? By faith in Yahweh. And so we can say that it was God's will, God's plan for Esau to receive a blessing. And what do we have in, in, in Genesis chapter 36, if not a picture of Esau, a blessed man, right? A vast family, many sons, many grandsons, much wealth and power, and influence. He is a blessed man. God keeps his promises. And yet we also know the end of the story of the Edomites too, don't we? We know that they were conquered by King David in 1 Chronicles. And then they were destroyed by King Amaziah in 2 Chronicles. And then through Jewish historians, we know that under the rule of the Maccabeans, they were ultimately decimated and absorbed back into the nation of Israel. And that's the other part. That's, that's, that's part of the prophecy that God gave to their mother, Rebekah. Two nations are in your womb, so Esau, you're going to become a nation. But the second part of that prophecy, the older will serve the younger. The older, Esau, by natural birth is the firstborn, Yet the older, by God's will, will serve the younger Jacob. And that's exactly what ends up happening. And so we, what we have in Genesis chapter 36 is yet another example, and there have been many of them in Genesis, but yet another example of how God keeps his promises. What he wills to happen will happen. He keeps his promises. And think about the Israelites wandering the desert as they're listening to Moses, as they're hearing this story for the first time this account of their enemy, the Edomites, and how they're, they're reminded here that God keeps his promises, they would be encouraged to trust Yahweh, no matter how hard, it, how hard it gets as they make their way to Canaan, to trust Yahweh to keep his promises to them, to give them the promised land, to conquer and give them victories over the peoples of that land so that they might be given the land by the Lord and to bring from them a king who would rule forever on the throne of David, defeating sin and death and ruling forever. 
And so this reminder here that God keeps his promises is an encouragement to us as well, church, to trust God that he will keep his promises to us. The promise to rescue us from judgment through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. The promise to never leave us or forsake us. The promise that he's preparing for us an eternal home of glory. The promise of the resurrection, our resurrection, of of resurrected bodies, heavenly bodies one day. And the promise that one day sin and Satan will be finally destroyed. And the promise of eternal life and glory through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. So when when the wilderness of hopelessness has us all wrapped up and we're surrounded by it, we too can look at stories like this of Esau and be reminded that when God makes a promise, it's as good as done. God keeps his promises. Second lesson that we learn from this chapter is that God is sovereign and man is responsible. Those two doctrinal truths are not mutually exclusive. God is sovereign and yet man is responsible. We've seen the God is sovereign part already in this chapter. God sovereignly wills that Esau would become a nation and he becomes a nation. God sovereignly wills that Esau would be blessed and he is extraordinarily blessed. And God wills that one day the Edomites would serve Israel and they do. But if we go back to the beginning of the story of Jacob and Esau, we see that God's sovereignty plays out in an even more fundamental way in their life. If you recall, God's prophecy over the twins that the older will serve the younger, that was fulfilled in two separate occasions before the boys even left their father's house. First, Esau gets hungry, and in his hunger, he sells his birthright to his brother Jacob. Now Jacob has the right of the firstborn son because Esau sold it to him. Even though Esau was born first, Jacob now has the right of the firstborn son. Esau sold it to him. We should know that Esau makes a free choice here. He makes a free choice to sell his birthright. He was acting out of his own fleshly appetite for food. He was hungry, so he sold his birthright. And yet, when we talked about that story, you may recall that we talked about how we must look at Esau's choice here to sell his birthright, we must look at that against the backdrop of God's sovereign will for the older to serve the younger. Because Jacob was God's chosen, not Esau. Just as Isaac was God's chosen, not Ishmael. This was God's sovereign will. The second instance of how this prophecy of the older serving the younger was fulfilled in their life early on was when Jacob, as you recall, dressed up as his hairy brother Esau and deceived their father into giving him the blessing of the firstborn son. And it worked. The deception worked. Jacob now received not just the rights of the firstborn son, but the blessing of the firstborn son. And we should note there too that Jacob was free in his choice to deceive his father into giving him the blessing. And we see from both of these circumstances, in, in, in Jacob's free choice to deceive his father, again, we also see that against the backdrop of God's sovereignty that the older will serve the younger. God's working out his will. And in both of those situations, 
We see man making a free choice, Esau to sell his birthright, Jacob to deceive his father into selling him the blessing of the firstborn son. And so we see that these men end up bearing the responsibility of their choices, and yet we see them both against the backdrop of God's sovereign will being worked out in their lives and in the lives of the nations that they would become. So we see, we see this exact same thing here in chapter 36. While it's clear and we've already established that God is sovereignly working in Esau's life to, 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 to bless him and to make him a great nation and to move him down to Edom so that he could bless him in this way, And yet, as we look at verses 6 through 8, we, we, we see Esau freely choosing to leave Jacob and leave the land of promise and leave Canaan. We, we see him choosing to marry Canaanite wives, something that God said, Jacob, you shall not do. And so this is Esau doing this and moving down to Edom away from God's chosen land. Look at verses 6 through 8. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. And he went away to a land away from his brother, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. That's away from Canaan. It's away from the land of promise. And Esau freely chooses to live there. He's not coerced. He's not mandated here. And all those, this decision results in generations of blessing for, for Esau. It also ultimately results in his decision to remove himself from Jacob ultimately causes him, his family, his sons, his grandsons, and the nation that comes from him to become a godless pagan people. And yet, church, here's the kicker. Even that we must see against the backdrop of God's sovereign will. Even that. We're told later by the prophet Malachi, God speaking through the prophet Malachi in Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. In that book, in Malachi chapter 1, the Lord is trying to describe for Israel his sovereign electing election of Israel over other countries. And why he did that, and, and, and what is the love that, that motivated that? And God says to them in Malachi 1, verse 2, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, reiterates that verse in Romans chapter 9, as Paul is articulating the doctrine of election and how God sovereignly chooses who will be his children and that he is completely just in his sovereign choice. There Paul says this, beginning in verse 10 of Romans 9. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, he's talking about Jacob and Esau in the womb, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, it's not because of their works, but because of him who calls them. She was told. So she's told this in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Rebecca was told while she's pregnant with the twins, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. 
You see, God's choice of Jacob over Esau was not based on anything good that Jacob did. He was still a baby in the womb. Nor was it based on God looking forward into Jacob's life and seeing what a good guy he would become. We've seen the flaw in that already in Jacob's life. No, Paul is explicit that God's choice of Jacob over Esau was entirely based on his sovereign will. And he says that when you look at Esau, when you look at Esau and his life, even in chapter 36, you should be reminded of two undeniable and foundational and not mutually exclusive truths, that God is sovereign and yet man is still responsible. And so we're reminded that of that in this chapter as well. Esau is making free choices here. Choices that might bring earthly blessing for a time, but will ultimately bring about the destruction of his family. He's not coerced in them in making these decisions. He makes them freely. And because they're his decisions, he's, hold, he's held responsible for them. And yet we observe Esau's actions against the backdrop of God's sovereign will at work. Setting both the course and the destiny of both individuals and nations. God is sovereign and yet man is responsible. A third lesson we can pull from chapter 36 is just a, a basic understanding of common grace. That God sometimes blesses the unrighteous. God sometimes blesses the wicked. If, as we've noted already, Esau ends up becoming synonymous with the reprobate, those whom God has not chosen to be his, then why in the world does he bless Esau like he does in this chapter? Why does he do that? We know that everything that God creates, everything that God does, he does to bring himself glory. Colossians 1.16, he creates everything through him and for him. Everything that God does is for his glory, including sometimes blessing the wicked. God sometimes chooses to do that, and God's people want to know why. Why, why would you do that, Lord? Jeremiah lamented, why do, why do the wicked prosper? Job complains in Job chapter 21, why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Their offspring are established in their presence and their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear, and no rod of God is upon them. Job goes on and on in that chapter, complaining about how those who don't love God and those who don't serve Yahweh seem to be blessed by God. He recognizes God's sovereignty in that. It's not by circumstance. It's not by, just by chance that they're blessed. God is blessing them because he's sovereign. And yet Job is experiencing, as we know, great suffering. Parenthetically, it's interesting to note that Job says this in response to the prosperity preachers of his day, the unwise friends that he has that come to give him counsel. And they say to him, in essence, Job, if you would just stop sinning, then you'd be blessed. Because only the wicked suffer, and the blessed, those who love God, those who serve Yahweh, live in blessing and prosperity. And my translation of Job is, are you blind? Open your eyes. Of course the wicked prosper. Just look around you. And so on one hand, this chapter is yet another helpful tool to show the folly of the false gospel of the health and wealth prosperity teachings of even today. 
Here is a nation of pagans. And they are not anything if they are not in chapter 36 blessed and enjoying great prosperity. But we see this today, don't we, church? We see the wicked prosper. We see godless millionaires and billionaires and scores of people who couldn't care less about the God of the Bible and yet seem to live very comfortable, wealthy, and blessed lives. And if we believe the previous lesson that God is sovereign and man is responsible, then we must see the sovereign hand of providence in their blessing. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, he makes his sun to rise on the evil and the good alike. He makes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Common grace means that God sometimes allow his beneficent grace, not his saving grace, but his beneficent grace to spill over onto mankind in general, regardless of who they're loving and following, regardless of whether they are his children or not. And part of this results in the prosperity of the wicked. And we can either lament and complain like Jeremiah and Job, as we often do, or we can listen to the wisdom of Psalm 49, where he says, Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to, go to the generations of his fathers who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. So this brings us to the final lesson of this earthly blessing does not equate with spiritual blessing. This is obvious, is it not? This is so obvious, but so often it is so difficult to set our hearts on the things above rather than on the things of earth. Because the things of earth are right in front of us. The things of earth are all around us. And the world around us is shouting to us every day that if we don't have that stuff, then we won't be satisfied, we won't be happy, and we won't be successful. And so we often err by longing after earthly and material blessing that we see in those who are successful and blessed and prosperous in this culture. Moses here in chapter 36 is one final time drawing a, a distinct line of demarcation between Esau and Jacob. The entire chapter, chapter 36, is about the blessing of Esau's life, right? All of the sons, all of the family, all of the wealth, all of the animals, all the power, all the influence. He has become a nation. And then we read the first verse of chapter 37, which parenthetically I think should be at the end of chapter 36. I think chapter 37 begins with verse 2, but that's a story for another time. Look at 37 verse 1. Jacob so we've just talked about Esau for an entire chapter about how blessed he is, the power. He's become a nation. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. Esau has become a nation. 
Jacob is wandering in a land that he doesn't even own, in the land of Canaan, waiting for God to fulfill his promises. One theologian put it this way, while Esau was out conquering the land of Edom, founding a nation, fathering kings, and making great worldly success of himself, Jacob was quietly living in a land he didn't even own, the land where his fathers had sojourned. While Esau's descendants were mighty chieftains, famous in their day, Jacob's descendants at that point were down in Egypt, enslaved by Pharaoh. It's easy for us to look at the wicked who prosper in our day and become envious of them, perhaps even a little self-righteous. Lord, don't I deserve that blessing? Maybe not all of it, just a taste of it. Can I just have a taste of it? Don't I deserve that? Listen to how the psalmist Asaph wrestled with this in Psalm 73. In verse 3 he says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Does that ever describe the thoughts of your heart? It has mine. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Then Asaph goes on from there in the next few verses to describe the extent to which the wicked have prospered greatly and been blessed beyond imagination. And then he says this a few verses later in verses 16 and 17. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went to the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Or as we read from Psalm 49 earlier, for when he dies, he will carry nothing away. Speaking of the unbeliever who has been prospered greatly in this life. When he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. Jesus puts us this way in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not uh, destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Friend, don't be envious of the success that you see in the heathen of our day. That's the story of Esau. He wanted that kind of blessing. And that's exactly what he got and nothing more. Nothing more. But we who have been rescued from sin and death by faith in Jesus Christ have an inheritance that far outweighs anything that the world could ever offer us. In closing, I want, to, want you to turn your Bibles to, towards the end of the Bible, end of the Bible uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. And I know we've read this a number of times before, but it would do well for us to read this again. And as we do, I want you to take your eyes, Christian, I want you to take your eyes off of the worldly success that you see around you and put your eyes on the inheritance that awaits those who follow Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, 
He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, even if the trials are the, the observance of the, the, the blessing, the prosperity of the wicked and the suffering in your life. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that, here's why you're, here's why you're dealing with those trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what awaits us, Christian. This world is just a preparation for the next So don't spend your life pursuing after earthly blessings that are just passing away and fleeting. But spend your life pursuing after the one who has already given you by faith in Jesus Christ an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading and will one day bring you to himself and to that inheritance. Pursue after him. Spend your life pursuing him. Otherwise, you're just spinning your wheels. And if you're not a follower of Christ this morning, then please consider that what you are living for will not last. It won't last. If you're living to make money and accumulate wealth, then enjoy it while you can. Because you can't take it with you. It's cliche but true. If you're living to make a name for yourself, please understand that in a thousand years, not a soul will know you existed. If you're living to improve life for your children and give them the American dream, then please know that not only will you not take it with you, but neither will they. No matter how hard you work and how much you accumulate and how much prosperity you enjoy, you will one day stand before your creator and you will be held accountable for choosing to go your own way. And in the end, all those who want their way instead of God's way will get exactly that. They will get their way apart from the presence of God forever. But perhaps God has you here this morning to hear good news, to hear the gospel, that though man was in rebellion against God and in his sin deserved that separation from him forever, God sent his son Jesus Christ to redeem redeem sinners like us, to rescue sinners like us, And he did that by sending his son Jesus to a cross to pay the penalty that we deserve. So that by faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord, as our rescuer, our redeemer, our savior, 
not by faith in our ability to try to live better and be a good person and come to church a lot, but 100% of our faith based on the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, that that is full and sufficient payment for my sins, that by faith in him we might be rescued from sin, given his righteousness, clothing us so that we would be made acceptable to God. I beg of you, if that describes you this morning, be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. We thank you for Genesis 36, the reminder that it is as we see this pagan nation and how you recorded in your holy words each of their names. We recall that our names are important to you. And before the foundation of the world, you had chosen those who will be yours. Not, by, not based on anything good in us, but based solely on your sovereign will. In faith, we thank you for that, Father. And Father, based on what we see in the life of Esau and his brother Jacob, and how you continue to keep your promises to both of them, May it be a reminder to us, no matter where we are in our life this morning, no matter what wilderness you have us wandering in, you are faithful and your steadfast love is never ending and we can trust you. So I pray for my brothers and sisters, Father, wherever they are, that you would build their trust in you, that, that their understanding of you, Father, would be magnified in their heart and life and will such that they reach up as a trusting child and grab your hand and let you walk with them through that wilderness. We thank you that you are doing that and that you will continue to do that until you bring us home. We pray this in faith in Jesus' name. Amen.